We're so glad that you are checking out this sermon from New Beginnings. Our vision as a church is to become an authentic biblical community that transforms our city and impacts the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We do this through gathering in worship, growing through community, giving to the kingdom, and going on mission. We know that one of the greatest blessings of the church is getting to pursue this vision that God has given us together. My hope is that we would get the opportunity to connect with you in person and get you plugged into the life of our church. Also, if you have been blessed by the ministries of New Beginnings, we ask that you would consider supporting us financially. You can do so by clicking on the giving tab of our website, nvbctx.org. I pray that you are both encouraged and challenged by the scripture today. Well, it is Labor Day weekend, and, and it is a weekend where it, we kind of set aside uh, tomorrow as kind of this exhale, kind of this day of rest, hanging out with family and friends. And I was, as I was kind of thinking through uh, what Labor Day weekend was, here's what I came to realize. I didn't really know what it was. Like, I didn't really know why we did it, how did it start, didn't really have an understanding of what this, what this holiday was. It's a federal holiday. So I started kind of reading back, and here's what I've discovered. It was kind of born out of a, a very dark and difficult time uh, for the American worker. Back in the mid to late 1800s, um, the, the, the mining industry, the manufacturing industry, and, and a lot of these others was, were very difficult, uh, very dismal. There were abysmal working conditions, and people worked very long days for very little pay, and the work was dangerous. And matter of fact, the standards uh, back then were so low that there were kids that worked. There were six and seven and eight-year-old kids who would work in these conditions, make a fraction of what their adult counterparts made. It was just a very dark time for the American uh, worker. And what began to happen was there was this kind of uh, uprising of uh, of labor unions. So we started to see these groups of people who began to say, "Hey, you know what? These conditions." And these wages are unfair, and they're unsustainable, and it, and it can't stay like this. We, we need to improve safety. We need to get children out of these situations. We need to be paid a little more for a sustainable life. And these labor unions began to form, and then there became this friction. There became this unrest between the worker and the labor union and then their employers and the federal government. As a matter of fact, through the uh, late 1800s, you see these riots and protests and all of this unrest, some of it very violent, uh, in response to uh, the working conditions and in an attempt to see them improved. And it isn't until 1894, it isn't until 1894 that the federal government sets aside this day, creates a federal holiday called Labor Day, and it is meant to uh, acknowledge and to say thank you to the American worker for how hard they work and the contributions they made to the success and to the th uh, thriving of our country. And so we've set this first Sunday, I'm sorry, first Monday in September aside as Labor Day, and it's meant to be this rest and this exhale. And the reason is because no matter who you are or what you do, your body needs rest, right? Have you ever paid attention to what happens to your mind when you're not sleeping enough? Any mamas in the room remember early baby days? 
when you couldn't remember the last time you bathed and all that sort of stuff, right? Just, that's a real thing, okay? And because your brain doesn't work, right? I was, I was thinking back to when our kids were young and our, our kiddos were babies and, and I was thinking, I was, found some captions that I thought really kind of nailed how we felt as parents. Here's, here's the first one. Look at this. Mommy, I'm sorry you're tired. Just kidding. I don't care. That was, I honestly felt that way. I think that my, my, my babies, they would meet and they would have meetings called We Don't Care How Mommy Feels Meetings. And that's the, that's the conclusion they came to. Here's another one. Look at this. Not sure if baby is crying or I am hallucinating. Anybody ever been so tired you hear babies cry that aren't there? This is, this is not a joke. This is not a joke. I can tell you in complete honesty, there would be times that we would wake up in the night and hear our baby girl cry. Here's the problem. She, was be, she would be at my mom's house. She wouldn't even be in the same house, and we would sit up in the bed and go, hey, go check on Kelsey. She ain't here. But I would hear her. <laughs> I would hear that baby crying. So would Carrie. It was unbelievable. Here's one more. How do I put this? You will never sleep in again. That is actually true. <laughs> Look at that baby. <laughs> that is actually, listen, I legitimately thought that's how we felt when, when we were in those early years, man, we weren't resting. And I read an article this week that kind of talked about the importance of rest and, and what it does and what it means for the human body. And, um, you know, every part of your body, every single part of who you are is affected by whether or not you are resting well. What do I mean? I mean, your mood, your cognitive thinking and reasoning, your memory, your dexterity, your immune system, your blood pressure, your weight, everything is affected by rest. Why? Because our bodies are meant to have rest. There is a, there's a rest that we see in God's Word. Uh, you've heard me reference this verse several times. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, who are all who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I've heard this verse most of my life. Many of you have heard this verse um, most of your life. But I think in order for us to grasp uh, the significance of it and the weight of it and the beauty of it, I think we need to kind of see it in its context. So I want you to grab your Bible and go to Matthew chapter 11. And we're going to start in verse 16, Matthew 11, verse 16. And I want to kind of give you some, uh, catch you up to where we are in the narrative uh, before we jump into verse 16. In these first few verses of chapter 11, we see some very important things. Jesus has just uh, spent the bulk of chapter 10 telling his disciples how and where they are to go to preach the gospel and share the good news of Jesus. And it then says in verse 1 that he then begins to preach and teach in their cities. What were those cities? It was the city of Capernaum and the cities surrounding that. And so Jesus begins to do that. And we see in verse 2 that John the Baptist is in prison. And do you remember why he was there? Remember Herod the king had uh, taken his brother's wife and John the Baptist called him out on it and publicly rebuked him. And as a result, he is now in prison prison and he is having a crisis of faith and we'll see that uh, a little later but out of that John from prison sends his disciples to Jesus to ask a question and the question is are you truly the Messiah are you are who you say you are and then in in verses 4 
through 6, we see how Jesus answers him. And then starting in verse 7, Jesus begins to speak to the crowd that is near, and he begins to affirm John the Baptist. He reminds them that this is the fulfillment of Elijah. You remember the prophecy of Elijah to prepare the way of the Lord, and Jesus says, that's who this is. John the Baptist is Elijah. He has come to prepare the way, and, but because these people had rejected John the Baptist as the messenger and rejected Jesus as the Messiah, he begins to rebuke them, and that's kind of where we pick it up in verse 16. So look with me, Matthew 11, starting in 16, God's word says this. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking. And they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking. And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet... Wisdom is justified by her deeds. What is Jesus saying? You may not receive it, but what we say is proved by what we do. That's what he's saying there. Verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But listen to this, but I tell you it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. And at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. In verse 27, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. And then the verse is where we'll spend most of our time. So come to me, all who are weary, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Let's pray. Father, um, we confess this morning, I confess, Lord God, that um, we need the power of your Holy Spirit with us today. God, your Spirit illuminates your Word to us. It, it causes it to go from words on a page to uh, a, a transformative heart. And so, Father, I am praying that your Spirit would be in this place, God. I'm begging that of you that you would not deny us your presence, God, but that you would flood this place with your presence. Cause your word to come alive. Cause it to do what your word does, which is draw out of us those things that do not please you and pour into us those things that make us more like you. And so, Father, I'm asking that you would do that now, that this would be a true and living word for our hearts. And I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we see here in... Verse 16 through 
19, this heavy rebuke from Jesus toward the people who did not receive John the Baptist as the prophet or he as the Messiah. And in essence, what we see Jesus saying here is, what must we do? He's saying, what must we do? John came eating and drink. John came not eating and drinking, and you said he had a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and you called him a glutton. He said, we played the dirge, and you did not mourn. We played the flute, and, and you did not dance. You did not celebrate. He's saying, you've had the truth in front of you, the prophecies fulfilled in your sight, and you have rejected it. He said, the word has been declared to you time and time again, and still you are not moved. John came to you saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and your hearts would not break. The son of man came, the bridegroom, the Messiah, and there should have been celebrating and dancing, and still their hearts were not moved. And then in verse 20, he begins to call out these cities by name. These cities where he performed all of these miracles and these signs, Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum. And here's what's important to note. This area around Capernaum, these cities, this was the hub of the ministry of Jesus. This is where he spent most of his time. It's where he performed most of his miracles. It's where he had taught. It's where he had preached most of his sermons right here in Capernaum and, and Chorazin and Bethsaida. And in verse 20, it says he denounces these cities. Why does he do that? Is it because they hadn't heard the truth or seen the truth? No, it says in verse 21 and in 23 that there were mighty works done in these cities. That word mighty works is really interesting. It's one Greek word that we've translated to two. The one Greek word is dunamis, dunamis, which is where we get our word dynamite. So they've taken that one Greek word to make those two words of mighty works. But what Jesus is saying is there have been these explosive works done in you. These powerful displays of my authority and my identity have been done in your presence. It's been undeniable. I've preached the gospel. I've taught the truth. And I've backed it up with these signs and wonders. And Jesus doesn't denounce them. Because they didn't know the truth. Jesus denounces them because they were indifferent to the truth. Wow. Think about that. He denounces them because in all of that, in that display of his power and his authority, and in that, in that environment of his presence and his teaching, their hearts were not moved. And then he goes on to say, that it will be better in the judgment for cities like Tyre and Sidon and Sodom. Now, those are heavy words. We know Sodom. That is, the, that is the poster child city for rebellion towards God and hard-heartedness towards God. And Jesus is saying it's going to be better for those cities than it will be for you. Why? Because there is a, there is a responsibility there is a response that is necessary when you have heard and seen the truth of Jesus Christ and when the transformative power of the gospel has been declared. There's a response that is necessary. And Jesus says, there is a weight 
that is different for those cities who have heard it, who have seen it, who have experienced it, and have not been transformed by it, have rejected it. There is a different judgment for them than for these cities who never heard. And that is a burden. That's a burden that I have for our, our city, for our church, for all of these surrounding areas. That week in and week out, we would have people come and hear the declaration of the gospel. Hear the truth of God's word. See the evidence of life change. See the transformative power in the gospel on display as people move from death to life and see it with their own eyes, and yet their hearts are never changed. That's a burden in me. You know, we, I, th- I think this happens in our culture. You know, we, we live in this Bible Belt. We live where people know a lot about the Bible or know, know a little bit about Jesus, and they think that that knowledge, that head knowledge that they have about the Bible or about church or about Jesus is what they need, that that's going to save them. Or we do something more dangerous. We play this comparison game. We play this comparison game where we think to ourselves, well, I'm not as bad as fill in the blank. Anybody ever do that? I'm not as bad as, right? Which means I'm okay. Or we, or we do this morality give and take where we believe that our good works and our moral standing and, and our political beliefs are going to be the thing that saves us. So that when, when Jesus says, woe to you, Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum, these cities where he preached the good news, performed the signs and wonders, and still their hearts were not changed. He is saying, woe to you, Kilmer and Longview and Hallsville and Kilgore and Big Sandy and Pittsburgh. Woe to you. If you have seen the evidence of the gospel at work and heard the truth proclaimed, and yet your heart is hardened toward it rather than transformed by it. It's almost as if he's saying it's going to be better for cities like Los Angeles and New Orleans than it is for you. It's going to be better for Las Vegas than it is for you. Why? Because here, there is a, we've heard the good news. We faithfully proclaim it. We see evidence of life change. We live in community. We see God at work. So heaven help us if we're hardening our hearts toward that. So here's, here's what I would say this morning. If you are here and you, you have not trusted, you have not rested in Jesus as the Lord of your life, can I just tell you, He is who you're looking for. He is who you're looking for. All the effort you're investing to find meaning, it's in Him. It's in Jesus Christ. Maybe you've been playing that comparison game. The I'm not as bad as fill in the blank. And that's giving you a measure of peace, that you're okay. Or maybe you're playing the morality game that says, well, I'm doing some good things, and that's going to give me that measure of peace. But if you are here this morning and you have never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I am telling you, your good works and your comparison and your head knowledge are not going to save you. What saves you is resting in the work of Jesus. That's it. That's what saves. And listen, it isn't about saying, well, I'm just a bad person and I'm trying to be better. 
It's about recognizing I'm a dead person and Jesus can make me alive. Are you with me? We're not bad trying to get better. We are dead, we meet Christ, and we are alive. That's the acknowledgement. And that's where our hearts have to be in order to receive this work from Jesus Christ. And that is what he gives. He gives life and he gives rest for our souls. It is what he is offering today to anyone who will come. I think for the person who is far from God, who doesn't have a relationship, this rest that Jesus offers, it is really the first true rest you will find for your soul. But for the believer, for the church, for his disciples, this is a rest that nourishes and sustains us for the journey of being a disciple and being sanctified and following him for the rest of our life, becoming more like him. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor, all who are weary, and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So there's a couple of things that I want us to uh, kind of discover this morning as we look at what it means to rest in Christ. Here's the first thing I want you to see. This rest in Christ, it calls us to trust more, not try harder. Man, that's hard for me. It's a rest, it's a, it's a call to trust more and not try harder. But this is difficult for us because for, for so many things in our life, for all of our life, um, we have been told to simply try harder, right? Remember when you were in school and you didn't make the grade? It never applied to me, but I'm sure some of you were failures. I didn't. But if, <laughs> remember when your grades were less than stellar and what were you often told? Try harder, study more. Maybe you didn't make the team that you had tried out for. What were you told? Try harder. Maybe you didn't get the scholarship. Maybe you didn't get the start. Try harder. Try harder. You become an adult. What does it look like? You feel like you've earned the raise, but you didn't get it. What are you told? Try harder. Get here early. Stay later. You get passed over for the promotion. What's the message? Try harder. Try harder. But I want you to look again at what Jesus says in verse 28. He says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find a rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. See, I think in order for us to, to take hold of this, we need to gain an understanding of the language that Jesus is using. There are some key words here that I think we need to dial into, and those words are yoke and burden. What, what is this yoke that, and this burden that Jesus is talking about? The yoke that Jesus is inviting these people to come and lay down was the yoke of the religious leaders. You see, the Israel spiritual leaders had loaded the people down with these unscriptural burdens that were too heavy to bear. And they believed and taught that the only means by which you could please God was to keep and follow the law perfectly, and they added to that law constantly so that it was impossible to keep and it was impossible to bear. How do I know it was impossible? Because Jesus calls them out on it in Matthew chapter 23. In Matthew 23, verses 2 through 4, Jesus says this. He says, The scribes and the Pharisees sit at Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. 
Why? For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. What is he saying? He says, I have come to liberate you from that religion. He says, all of that thing, all of your life that has said, um, everything will get better if you try harder. He said, if you take that and try to lay it on top of your relationship with me, it is going to become a weight and a burden that you cannot bear. And Jesus has said, don't lay that on this relationship. I have come to give you a yoke and a burden that is easy and that is light. And it isn't about how hard you try. It is about learning to trust me more. There is this image that comes to my mind when I think of the yoke. And, and you've probably seen it, and so I've kind of found a picture. Look at those handsome guys. Listen, Ben and I had to pose a long time to get that shot right. I want to tell you. And, um, but we did it. Those guys look delicious, don't they? Anyway, um, who said that? So this is, a, <laughs> this is a yoke, right? And so what you would have is you would have these two animals that would wear this instrument at the same time to keep them working together, pulling in the same direction, working hard, and, and kind of getting the job done. They would be yoked together. I think Jesus is talking about a twin yoke like that. And... They would often take a younger, inexperienced animal, an ox or a cow, and they would pair it with an older, more experienced animal. So that as those two came together, that younger ox would learn how to pull, how to plow, how to move, how to hear and obey the commands of the farmer. So that when Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, he is inviting us into the twin yoke with him. And listen, that word learn that word is huge. That word, he says, learn from me. That is the same word that is translated disciple in Matthew chapter 28 in the Great Commission. It's the same word. Learner, to learn. Jesus is literally saying, come and learn with me. You will learn that I will bear the heavy load. As you learn, I will bear that. I will lead the way. I'm not here to weigh you down with burdens that you could never carry or live up to. I am here to lead you and to carry the weight for you. He says, come and learn what it means to be my disciple. And there you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. And listen, it isn't easy because um, it doesn't ask anything of us. Now, we have learned in the first couple of weeks of this series that this call to follow Jesus as a disciple is a call that requires everything of us. It's easy because... Jesus leads the way, and Jesus bears the burden. It isn't about me trying harder for Jesus. It is about me trusting more in Jesus. What do you think would happen if that young ox decided to start pulling against that yoke, whichever way it wanted to go, and started going at a different speed, decided it just wanted to lay down? How much work is going to get done? No, there's a measure of trust that that younger, inexperienced animal has to put into the older, experienced animal. That older ox, he knows the way. He's plowed that path before. 
right? So that younger one doesn't need to be fighting against the yoke. There is a submission. There's a trust that needs to take place. You see where I'm going. Jesus has invited us in to enter into this twin yoke with him, to yoke up with him. Why? Because he knows the way. He sees to the end of the road. He knows what's at the end of the path. He knows every stumbling block between here and there. He knows every moment that could cause you to sin. He knows when you need to run hard, when you need to slow down, when you need to press in, when you need to pull back. So Jesus says, come to me. All who labor and are heavy yoke, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Why? Because I see to the end of the path. And I will bear the weight. I will carry the load. And as you follow, as you trust, as you stop trying on your own, and as you submit and trust me more, there, in that place, you will find rest for your soul. So when Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, that's the invitation. It's the invitation not to try harder, not to just keep trying, not to just wake up in the morning and fingers crossed, grab my bootstraps. Oh, I hope I do okay today. No, it is a recognition that Jesus leads, Jesus knows, and I'm going to yoke in with my Messiah and let him lead the way. And I'm going to trust him. So it's a call to trust more, not to try Harder. Here's the second thing I want you to see about this rest. It is a rest for the soul, not for the body. It's a rest for the soul, not necessarily for the body. What do I mean by that? Look again at verse 29. Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your what? For your souls. Notice he doesn't say you will find rest for your Bodies. Again, we, we're discovering in this, in this series of what it means to be a disciple that this is not a call to come and take it easy. Right? It is not a call to come and do nothing. It is a call to come and give everything, to come and hold nothing back, to, to pay whatever it costs, to go wherever it leads, and to follow with reckless, it is reckless abandon. It's a call to sacrifice our lives. In Acts chapter 20, Paul says, he says, I consider my life as nothing, only that I may finish the course and ministry that Jesus has given me. It is a call to come and run the race, which is to say what? It's to say this, that this rest that we find in Christ is not a rest from the race. It is a rest in the race. It's not a rest from the journey, believer. It's a rest in the journey, right? It is not a rest from walking. It's a rest in walking. And it is not a rest from troubles. It is a rest in my troubles. Which is to say that my circumstances may not change. That situation that is a burden to you today, that thing that is weighing you down, the details of that situation may never change. But I am telling you that in Christ, yoked in with him, you can find rest for your soul even in that. It means that there are going to be times you are treated unjustly, but you can rest. There will be times that what being a disciple asks of us is, is everything, but we can pay that and we can rest. It's a rest for the soul. 
I noticed something this week as, kind of was, as I was kind of reading through <clears throat> and preparing. Uh, back up in uh, the first part of chapter 11. Now remember where John was. John was in prison, right? And he was there unjustly. He had called out this sin in Herod's life. Herod had lured and taken his brother's wife. John spoke out against him for marrying his brother's wife. And now, from prison, he sends his disciples to ask Jesus a question. And the question is this. He says, are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? In other words, are you the Messiah or should we be looking for somebody else? Now that seems incredible to me. That seems incredible. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a staggering question in light of who it is that's asking. This is John the Baptist. In light of what he came to do, and listen, what he had already declared about Jesus. In John chapter 1, long before John the Baptist ever goes to prison, he, he sees Jesus and he declares, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the John the Baptist who, while he was in his mother's womb, leapt when Mary drew near and Jesus was in her womb. From before he had entered this world, John the Baptist was uniquely connected to Jesus Christ. And he had already declared, this is the Lamb of God who is going to take away the sins of the world. But yet now we see him in prison. He is suffering. And he says, are you really who you say you are? What is happening here? I think John is having a crisis of faith. He's having a crisis of faith. Listen, here's what's happening. John's present circumstances are causing him to doubt. Hello. Anybody? His present circumstances are causing him to doubt. They're causing him to doubt what he knows to be true. What he's already declared to be true true. This is John's, I believe, but help my unbelief moment. Here he is, the forerunner of Jesus Christ, prophesied from hundreds and hundreds of years before, having stood for righteousness, having stood for integrity, and is now unjustly, unjustly thrown in prison and is suffering for righteousness' sake. And he begins to think just like we would. Which is what? If our God is omnipotent, if He is ultimately in control, if He is loving, if He is who He says He is, then why does He permit the righteous to suffer? Now, I don't like that John's going through this, but I find hope in these verses. I remember that even the best of us struggle. <laughs> We struggle in our faith. So believer, if you are here this morning and you are in a season where your soul is weary, where you are questioning what you know to be true about the person of Jesus Christ, I want you to see what Jesus is saying here. I want you to see his response to John. Why do the righteous suffer? And I think it's this, because the rest we have in Christ is not a rest for our bodies. It is a rest for our souls. It is not some guarantee of, of deliverance out of every trial that we will face. It is the promise that He is with us and that He will bear the weight of that trial as we walk through it. I want you to see when Jesus responds to John's question of, 
Are you the Messiah or should we be looking for another? Jesus quotes the Old Testament. He begins to quote from Isaiah. He starts quoting these messianic prophecies. And he says this in verse 4 through 6 of chapter 11. Look at this. And Jesus answered them, talking to the disciples of John, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, this is not the point that I'm wanting to make, but it is a point that we can't have lost on us and that is this. When this weary believer reached out to his Savior, what did Jesus use to restore him? He used the Word of God. <laughs> he lavished God's Word on him. Believer, if you are weary, if you are laboring in some burden and in some struggle, and your soul is weary, I am telling you, this is the fountain of refreshment right here. Pour this Word over yourself. And when a weary, weary brother and sister comes to you and they are struggling, pour this word over them. That's what Jesus does. He quotes from Isaiah, particularly he quotes from Isaiah chapter 61. And in verse 1, this is a messianic prophecy. It says this, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. He told John's disciples, you go tell them, you go tell him that the poor have the good news preached to them. He's quoting Isaiah 61, to preach good news to the poor. But I want you to remember where John is. Where is he? He's in prison. Well, what does the rest of that verse say in Isaiah 61? To liberate the captives, opening the prison to those who are bound. I think it's worth noting Jesus didn't say that part when he sent John's disciples back to him. He didn't say, tell him that the poor have the good news preached to them and that I'm going to open the prison for him and he's going to be liberated. Why? Because John's prison sentence was not going to end in his release. It was going to end in his death. He was going to die there. He was going to be beheaded in that prison. So what did Jesus say? He said, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. There are some translations that say, blessed is the one who does not stumble on my account. What is he saying? He is saying, John, hold on. Trust the word that you know. Don't let go of what you know to take hold of what you don't know. There is a truth that you have known, John. You know that the one who comes is going to, is going to heal. He is going to raise up. The lepers will be cleansed. The blind will see and the good news will be preached to the poor. I am fulfilling that word, but you are not going to be released from that prison. So hold on. Endure to the end. Let what you know about me give you rest for your soul believer Jesus doesn't promise that everything we face 
He's going to snatch us out of and set us somewhere else. But he does promise, I'm going to get into that thing with you. I'm going to yoke in. You yoke in with me because I've already seen that. I know where the victory is over that. I know how to get around that sin issue, and I know how to get to the end of the row. So if you will come in and yoke in me, stop trying harder and just trust me more. And recognize this may cost your body, but there is a rest for your soul. If you will do that, that is where you will find the peace of God. So how does this rest meet us where we are today? If you are, if you are weary from striving on your own, Jesus says, come and rest. If you are worn down, Listen, from trying to live up to a standard you can never keep. He says, come and rest. Some of you are allowing a standard of social media to determine your contentment in this life. Some of you are allowing a group of people that you believe if you were in that group of people, you would feel more satisfied, you would feel more fulfilled. Whatever they have is what I need to have and I need to get into that group. But to be into that group, I've got to become this or act this and I start layering these things on my life, believing lies. If you're sick of that, Jesus says, come to me and rest. If you are sick of tripping and stumbling over the same sin issue in your life. Jesus says, come to me and rest. If you have had enough of the comparison game, if you have had enough of saying, okay, maybe I'm okay because I'm better than, or maybe, maybe you've had enough of this morality game, hoping your good works are going to take care of it, Jesus says, come and rest. This rest that we find in Christ it satisfies like nothing else. It, it's the rest of 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that says, it is renewing my inner self even when my outer self is wasting away. It's the, it's the rest in Psalm 23 that restores my soul even in the valley of the shadow of death and right in the presence of my enemies. That's the rest. It's the rest of Psalm 46 that says, I can cease my striving and I can be still. And know that he is God. It is the rest of 1 Peter chapter 5 that says, Cast all your anxieties and your cares on me because I care for you. It's the rest of Matthew 11 that says, You don't have to try harder. You have to trust me. Trust me. And if you will, like Paul, say, I count this life as nothing except to finish the race. And, and I'm not looking for rest for my body. I'm looking for rest for my soul. I want that rest that's going to help me endure to the end, even if it costs me everything. That's the rest you find in Christ. So if you're, listen, if you're here this morning, and your confession would be, I, I have never put my faith and rested in Jesus. Man, I've come to church my whole life. I've heard that stuff, but I'm just like those people Jesus rebuked, and I'm just like those cities. My heart was hard toward Christ, and I just need to confess that. Can I tell you something? You are in the right place today. You are right where you need to be because right here is where you can run up that, that white flag of surrender and yoke in with Jesus and for the first time find rest for your soul. You can do that this morning. You just come take one of us by the hand. And right now, some of you have heard that call in your heart 
And already the enemy is saying, ah, don't worry about that. You don't need to do that today. You can do that later. You, gotta, you need to go get this thing over here in your life fixed before you try to get right with God. You're, just, you're a hot mess and you don't need to be, mm-mm, that is a lie from the enemy. You know what Jesus excels at? Hot messes, because I am one. That's what he does, man. He meets us when we are weak, when I was far from him. It says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, gave himself up for us. So don't believe the lie this morning that you are too far. You are not. You can come this morning and you can find rest for your soul. Believer, disciple, if your confession this morning is, I am weary, my soul is weary, and I need rest, then I am telling you it is not about trying harder. It is about trusting more. It is about saying, I am willing to give this body up if it means having a soul rest that sees me finish this race. You come and you can find that rest. And that, here's, that may look like you come into the altar today and just praying, just getting on your knees right down here and saying, God, I am sick of trying to do this on my own. I am trying, I am trying, I am trying, and I am getting further and further away from what I know you've called me to do. Maybe it's taking one of us by the hand. And just linking arms and getting into community and saying, I am struggling and I need help. Maybe it's while we sing, you just sit down where you are and pray and lay this out before the Lord. Those people in those cities were denounced and rebuked because they had heard and seen the truth and become indifferent to it. God, don't let that be in this room today. Don't let it be in my heart. I'm praying it's not in your heart. If the Lord God has spoken to you and you need rest for your soul, whether it is salvation or whether it is endurance to finish the race, then you can come and we can find that together or you can put that before Him right where you are. But the Word of God and the deliverance of the Gospel requires a response. So let's respond together and let's respond in obedience. Let's pray. Father, I love you and... Lord, I am so thankful for the truth that you love us, that you never leave us, that you never forsake us. You love us with an everlasting love. It is a love that is uh, more powerful than any fear or any lie that the enemy can whisper into my ear, God. It is bigger than that. It is better than that. And so, Lord, I am praying that this morning we would be drawn to that rest and to that love that satisfies like nothing else. So, Holy Spirit, move in this place. Move in this place, Lord. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and let's worship and respond. I hope that you have enjoyed this message. If you have any questions about anything that you have heard today or would like to know more about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, feel free to call our church offices at 903-759-5552 or send us an email at info at nbbctx.org. As for staying up to date with what's going on at New Beginnings, follow us on our social media accounts. Have a great rest of your day.